Hello and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Dorian Linsky. On the 4th of April, Keir Starmer was elected Labour leader with more than 56% of the vote. It's not been an easy year, wouldn't have been even without COVID-19. His task was to show Labour was under new management without completely rejecting the legacy of Jeremy Corbyn. But the publication of the EHRC report into anti-Semitism in October sparked a showdown between the new and old leaders. How has Starmer done so far? And what challenges lie ahead for Labour? I was going to say new Labour. New, 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 new Labour. With me to write his end of year report card is Nick Cohen, columnist for The Observer and elsewhere. Hi, Nick. Thanks for joining me. Uh, hi, Dorian. My pleasure. So let's start start with sort of broad strokes. Um, Starmer's been uh, in office eight or so months. Um, what do you make of him? Are, are some of his kind of uh, strengths and weaknesses already very apparent to you? Uh, well, strengths, Labour having gone down to their worst defeat since 1935 are, you know, back up there, back in the opinion polls, doing quite well. Um, that's the strength. Uh, another strength is in that strange British way, he looks like a prime minister. In fact, you know, even people who deplore the Labour Party and uh, would never consider voting it would probably, if you push them, say, would be in a better state with COVID if Keir Starmer were Prime Minister than Boris Johnson. And that's to do with all kinds of things like gravitas, experience, uh, an appeal to people who who value um, competence and what have you. Those are the strengths. The weaknesses... Um, well, you alluded to one, the party is hopelessly divided. The other is, it's quite hard to put your finger on this, but a kind of lack of oomph, uh, a kind of lack of, not so much from Starmer, he's a figurehead, he's in charge, but he was very restricted in who he could choose for his shadow cabinet. Um, essentially, he wanted no one who had been involved in the left-right wars that preceded him. So, you know, people who'd walked out of the of the shadow cabinet in protest against Corbyn, including you know good people, people you'd expect to see on the front line helping, uh, aren't there. You know, your Yvette Coopers, your Hillary Benz. I mean, he has got some. I mean, Ed Miliband, I think, is doing very well uh, and is is a good at pinning down the government's mistakes. Uh, David Lammy does well. Uh, Andy Burnham does well in, 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 in Manchester. But you do feel, or I feel, partly it's a sign of age, the last time Labour took power from the Tories in the 1990s, it's all mythologised as Blair, but there were... Half a dozen frontline politicians who command the TV debate, command attention. Mo Molan, Robin Cook, uh, David Blunkett. You had these big national figures who looked like they could walk into camera and were making the case against the Tories the whole time. And that's not quite there at the moment, I think. Is it hard to assess Starmer and his team in a year that's been so dominated uh, by one issue, and of course, which has confined uh, has confined people to their homes for the large part of it. Yeah, I think that's fair. I think that's true. Uh, the normal uh, ways, if you like, I was going to say uh, uh, a uh, brand new politician. They're not brand new, but you know, the, a new shadow chancellor, a new shadow home secretary, 
would start getting attention. Speeches, conference speeches, talking to journalists, um, getting getting uh, getting coverage. Lockdown has has kind of wiped all those out. So you know, I, I, I'm not having a go at Annalise Dodds or anyone, but it's just when I say that they're not making much of an impact, it's very hard to it's very hard to in these circumstances, and p- perhaps they will if, thank God and pray God, we ever get out of this mess. I mean, people say that he doesn't yet have. Uh, I mean, his policies aren't clear yet. He hasn't sort of offered a, a vision of of Britain. Now, you you you'll probably have a better memory of this stuff than me. Is that unusual? eight months uh, into a leadership that do most leaders have, you know, their, their kind of their policy offer and their vision uh, in place by then? No, but no, I mean, uh, that would be ridiculous. It'd be ridiculous, particularly in these circumstances, for one reason. We're in the worst recession for 300 years. We've had 60,000 deaths and probably another 60,000 surplus deaths. There are vaccines on the way, but who knows how long this is all going to take and what state will come out of it. To just say now, well, I've got a list of things I want to nationalise. Here is my um, green energy proposal. It's kind of a bit, well, you know, there are world-shaking events going on around you. You Whatever policy comes out of it will have to take those into account. You can't protect, you can't just... uh, pretend as if 2020 never happened, and much though we might wish it didn't. That said, that said, there is something in the accusation, I think, something that, you know, it's all very well going on about competence and how useless and disgracefully inept, criminally inept, I would say, this government is. That's fine. That is important. And, and you should, and, and you know, people who, who get their thrills ideologically, um, often underestimate the point that opposition it's not governments who lose elections uh oppositions lose elections and the biggest way they lose an election if people is, is if people can't imagine what it would be you just think well yeah okay okay i agree with lots of stuff they're saying about whoever it may be um trump or um uh, johnson or macron or whoever but i cannot see you in power i cannot see you doing better that that does matter, but you know, still, I think they they do need to, as COVID dies down, start putting out ways, having some clear red water on how a Labour governed Britain would be different. Mm. And perhaps I'm being unfair to them. I you know, I, uh, shamefully for a journalist, I don't read every Labour Party press release or listen to every well, not they make speeches anymore. So they, you know, they might come back. I heard someone on on, on one issue of the bunker, uh, a front bench politician, Labour politician, saying, "But we do talk about this. We talk about all kinds of stuff, except you know, that we're in opposition. No one reads our bloody press releases." So I may be being unfair, but if you're in opposition and government with not massive but pretty damn impressive majority, you have to force your attention, force people to pay attention to you, and. Again, you know, you can say COVID and everything, but they're not really doing that yet. Yeah, so they got it because the criticism, I suppose, is they haven't done enough opposing, which you could really understand in the in the early uh, months of of COVID, where where they didn't want to seem that they was kind of playing political games with 
with the sort of nation's health and the economy, obviously on the issue of when the timing of a circuit breaker lockdown, uh, you know, there was there was some real distance between Starmer and, and, and Johnson on that. And Dodds, and Dodds you know, uh, she said right from the start, uh, um, this furlough scheme, you can't just lift it in the summer. It's not going to work. And in the end, Sunak had to, had, had yeah. to agree with her. The difficulty is, and this comes down to, and I'm sure if we had a Labour politician on, he or she would blame the media, is that they're not quite owning the climb downs that they're they're forcing Johnson into, or or they say Johnson is forced to to go into. Mm. Um, Well, to turn to the opposition to the opposition, um, Starmer sacked Long Bailey, Rekha Long Bailey from the shadow cabinet and suspended the whip from Corbyn for for sort of broadly similar reasons, a failure on anti-Semitism, you know, an an unfortunate statement followed by a refusal to apologise. Do you think Starmer would rather have avoided confrontation and got the apology and, 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 and moved on? Or do these symbolic scalps sort of help him in terms of is sort of messaging to the world outside. Uh, the well, I mean, they certainly help him with messaging to the wider electorate. Um, did he want this? I think you've got to remember that he is, before he's anything else, he was a, a very successful lawyer and then was director of public prosecutions. And what he believes in is due process following rules, so, historically, the left of the Labour Party has fought the leadership on policy. So, it, you know, nuclear disarmament in the 1950s and the 1980s, for example. Big, big questions. They've got the campaign group, the Corbynite group, if you like, has more MPs than ever before. You would have thought they would have chosen to say, OK, we are a solid left. We've got Unite in our pocket, or they're in Unite's pocket. It's hard to know which way round. We are going to insist that Labour sticks to these socialist policies. But inevitably, and from the point of view of Britain's Jews, frighteningly, what the one thing they will fight on is anti-Semitism. You know, he didn't sack Rebecca Long-Bailey because... She was babbling or quoting someone who was babbling some conspiracy theory that Israel, a.k.a. Jews, were behind the uh, the killing of George Floyd. He sat there because his office contacted him, contacted her, said, please take this down, please disassociate yourself from this. And she said no. Well, you've got some a lot of CLPs, uh, campaign group MPs, um, Corbyn sporting journalists, you know, calling for Corbyn to be let back into the PLP. But he's just set up this new peace and justice project just before uh, we started talking. I noticed that uh, the, the Canary was trailing uh, an interview. Canary is a terrible record uh, with the anti-Semitism issue. Does he actually want to come back? Because you'd, you'd think if he did, then obviously he wouldn't be talking to the Canary. Obviously, you know, he doesn't seem to be doing any of the things that would enable Starmer to, to, to allow him back. So is Corbyn sort of... A lot of people want Corbyn back, but does Corbyn really want to come back? And is he prepared to do anything to make that happen? Uh, all politicians, all of most people, actually, including 
me, possibly even you, Dorian, are our veins to some extent. I mean, to come back, you know, you do what um, uh, people in politics, people in all kinds of life do. You eat a bit of shit. You say you're sorry, uh, and I'm, uh, you know, and you, put, and you probably could come back. There is one thing that I I've tried, and uh, I've also read journalists who specialise in covering the Labour Party, I can find no explanation for in the way Starmer's behaved, or rather Labour Party General Secretary's behaved, that's this. The Equality and Human Rights Commission set up a new legal process, including an independent complaints procedure. But rather put Corbyn in front of that, they put him in front of... Um, some you know, highly politicised body where you can go through the members from the National Executive Community and say, he's left, she's right, he, she's centrist, you know, whatever. Um, and I don't understand why they did that. You know, I guess what will happen in next year is there'll be a huge route Labour conference over the General Secretary and probably next year, the year after, Richard Bergson will run against Starmer and lose. And, uh, but, you know... That's the hill they've chosen to die on. And how many of the? I mean, these these sort of the Starmer, uh, the Starmer haters are very vocal on Twitter, very noisy at the CLP level. I mean, how much of a problem? If you were Starmer, would you would you be worried about them? Are they are they, are they a kind of a threat to his leadership, a threat to the party, or are they just a kind of an irritant that he can live with? I keep thinking, Dorian, about a line Michael Heseltine once said about England. He said, people keep saying England's a conservative country. Not Scotland, Wales. England is a conservative country. It's not true. Whenever Labour wants to win an election, it wins an election. And so the question I keep asking myself, you know, people on Twitter, so what? CLPs, you're talking meetings where 30 people turn up. Mm. Again, I'm not dismissing them, but again, you know, how representative. <clears throat> what I don't quite see yet uh, on among Labour Party members is we just want to do whatever we have to do. We want to win. It matters as a Labour government. However, you know, pale pink, however wishy-washy, however milk toast compared to what we believe in, that is better than having Boris Johnson in power. And I don't think they're quite there yet. And if I were Keir Starmer, that would worry me. That would worry me. And back to Starmer, I mean, this, this poll, recent polls show that, that some of the so-called red wall seats are, you know, are, are winnable. They're not exactly rock solid Tory. Um, how does I mean I suppose this is the, this is the big issue that keeps coming up. How does Labour appeal to the sort of more socially conservative voters that it that it lost that it would like to win back, without angering what I suppose you would now call its base, which is sort of younger, more urban, and more liberal. I mean we we shouldn't really talk in terms of how can it reunite Leavers and Remainers because that's uh, that's last year's news. But there is still this kind of divide uh, in, in, you know, in values, in age, in education, at any time Starmer says anything about, you know, people in place or whatever, anything that might appeal to them. Um, some of the kind of the, the other Labour base, um, you know, gets, get, gets very angry. Is that, is that going to be a very difficult needle to thread? Yeah. Um, if you look across the Western world, centre-left parties are increasingly becoming parties of graduates 
at university education is by far and away the biggest predictor of political behaviour, political beliefs, everywhere you look. So the parties of graduates on the one hand and ethnic, in alliance with ethnic minorities who might not share, often don't share, uh, the social liberalism, but stick with the left because whatever much they, you know, people might dislike, elements within ethnic minorities might dislike or disagree with at social liberalism, the social liberalism also includes a commitment to anti-racism and that means a lot to them. And everywhere in the Western world, uh, the centre-left parties are losing um, white working class, or better, better description, nativist working class, native working class, I mean, isn't really a word for it, uh, support. And so you see, you saw it in the American elections, Democrat votes absolutely concentrated in cities, in big cities. The, the problem for Starmer is, you, you, you talked about red wall seats. Uh, the same, he's got the same problem in Scotland, where you know, if, you look, if you think of Brexit and Johnson as English nationalism or British nationalism, you know, and it's taken a Labour heartland or parts of a Labour heartland. In Scotland, Scottish nationalism has swept Labour aside. And it's, it is hard to know how to fight that. I mean, I don't want to get meta-historical with you. Uh, 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 you know, so, early in the, so early in the podcast, Dorian, but about the most um, heart-dropping moment in left-wing history is 1914 when all the parties of the Second Socialist International in Britain, France, Germany, Holland, had all promised each other, if war comes, we will say this is a war between the ruling classes, that the workers of Britain and Germany have more in common than, uh, than they have with the British establishment or, 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 or Wilhelmite Germany. And when war's declared everywhere, the Social Democratic Party sign up with the war. Nationalism trumps social democracy. And we, we're having that a bit, in, not, not on the same scale of a global disaster, but we're having something like that in Britain. Scottish nationalism has beaten the Labour Party rotten in Scotland. You can blame individual leaders and the one they've got at the moment isn't very good, but that's the bigger picture. At the last election, for the first time, you saw the Conservative Party as a sort of English National Party to match the Scottish National Party. The North-South divide, which you know, is hugely important in English history, in, in every election since 1885, when, um, the, uh, when, when we started to move towards becoming a democracy of the representation of the people, are, yeah, there always was a north-south divide, and there simply wasn't at the last election. So where does that leave Starmer? Does um, policies he puts forward to win back the, uh, the red wall seats, as you call them, as we call them, does that alienate potential Labour voters in Scotland? Does he become more English nationalist and that does put Scots away, put Scots away? Does he alien? Does policies aimed at winning over the Red Wall alienate, as you said, his core support? You can put it like that, and 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 it seems formidable, and and it is formidable. 
I think a part of the answer is knowing when to just keep out of culture wars. So last couple of questions. You were saying earlier that the Labour left had chosen to sort of fight on the issue of of Corbyn and and sort of uh, minimising anti-Semitism rather than pursue its own policy agenda, which actually has quite a lot of influence to push through. So I know you were were not uh, were no fan of Corbyn, but if you were if you were them, which uh, policies that did emerge in the in the last five years that were in the last two manifestos, which you think would really be worth fighting for? The obvious ones are are our Green New Deal, nationalisation. Well, I mean half. Railways are already nationalised. You don't want to waste too much money on it. But you know, water, if you like, that's fine. But I would look at something better about redistributing wealth in Britain. And finally, can Labour win, do you think, in 2024 without Scotland? Or can it just lose by less? And by, by win, I suppose I'm, I'm also allowing here the chance of a, a coalition, uh, not just a, a majority. I think they can form a coalition, certainly. Um, but it's a sign of how successful Scottish nationalism has been that you, me, every other commentator you, you care to name doesn't isn't even thinking about what can happen in Scotland, how the SNP can be taken on, how Labour can take them on. Truly, unless that happens, I don't think Labour can win because, okay, you say they form a coalition. Well, who do they form a coalition with? They they have to form it with the SNP, which at the moment is guaranteed a minimum of 40 seats in Scotland and often a lot more. Um, If that is like to happen, you saw what happened to Ed Miliband in 2015 when Cameron could turn to English voters and say, a Labour government under Ed Miliband would be in Alex Salmon's pockets. They would put Scottish interests before English and Welsh interests. Don't vote for them. And people didn't. So unless it works out how to take on Scottish nationalism, uh, I think, you know, it's very difficult to see how it does better than denying the Tories uh, a, a big majority, which would, which, would be, which, which would be a huge achievement. If it works out how to fight Scottish nationalism, the same pol- the, 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 the prize for Labour is the way you fight Scottish nationalism will also be the way you fight Johnsonian English nationalism. Yeah, it, a lot of the themes will come together. Well, uh, let's see. We've got a long time. <laughs> four, four years away, which, uh, which might as well be 100. Thanks for joining me, Nick Cohen. My pleasure. Thank you, Dorian. And thanks to you for listening to The Bunker Daily. See you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers with Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production.